Today is November 12th, 2022. Welcome to Native Calgarian. Oki, Naganago, Mekoche, Chestokom, Oki, or Dekots, Nagotine, Siku. Hi, my name is Red Thunder Woman. My married English name is Michelle Robinson, and I use she and her pronouns. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Great Bear Lake Tribe in Treaty 11. My name, Dekots, Nagotine, Siku, is uh, Red Thunder Woman in Satu Dene. My people wore rabbit skin, so it's often been referred to as the land of the hair people. I'm a native to Turtle Island, and my Dene nation is a visitor to this area of Klincho Tene Indahe in Satu Dene, meaning many big dog town, named after the Calgary Stampede. I was born in Calgary or in Blackfoot, Mokinstis, is Michelle Elliott, an English name which has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene or Satu Dene, but my Indian Act imposed status card by the Canadian government says Yellowknife Dene. Through my father, I am a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution while having a Canadian Indian Act imposed status card, which is a colonial construct by Canadian policies meant to divide Indigenous peoples' inherent rights. Indigenous Two-Spirit or the Indigenous 2SLGBTQ2 plus community and Indigenous women are at the bottom of the Canadian socioeconomic ladder because of colonial trauma, imposed uh, poverty, racism, gendered violence, and land theft. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous, but I just share my journey as I walk down the red road. As a Dene woman who has attempted to run after joining harmful colonial parties, spent mon money to be at expensive conventions, left my home to travel to those conventions just to vote on incomplete policies that still allow of incarceration, a denial of justice, denial of health services, racism, colonial trauma, and genocide for Indigenous and Black peoples, I have work to continue to do, reports to advocate for, and attempt to work within these systems meant to harm me and my community. I think of all of this today, and I hope we honor the many Indigenous lives that are lost or incarcerated for the so-called country named Canada. I hope you all see your role in the importance of stopping harm and as a citizen, see your role in reconciliation and as a treaty partner. Pride Month should never just be one month, as it is important to understand the straight agenda and gendered violence was and is forced on this land by Christian outsiders. Land acknowledgements are critical for creating a safer space for Indigenous, as well as honoring the host as a guest and acknowledging your role as a treaty partner in a so-called time of reconciliation. It's important that land acknowledgements have meaning. I encourage all folks to introduce themselves with an acknowledgement of their ancestors, stories of displacement, how you perceive your role as a treaty partner, a citizen of Canada, a refugee, or other land displacement, so we as Indigenous people know how safe you are to be around. If you don't know how to pronounce your local Indigenous nation's names, won't say your pronouns, won't say your story of origin, won't acknowledge stolen lands, won't acknowledge imposed economic oppression and your role in reconciliation, I determine how safe you are to be around my community, my family, and myself. Understanding land acknowledgements and their importance is Indigenous 101 because it immediately addresses colonialism, oppression dynamics, broken treaties, and lies taught today in Canadian schools nationally. That's why settlers and those who call themselves Native Calgarians, or whatever town you're from, show me you have no Indigenous 101 understanding. Jesse Winty's book Unreconciled explains it perfect, as do many Indigenous authored books. Land Back is a movement that would save the planet from climate change created by colonialism, but also would be a part of a treaty partnership, part of meaningful, meaningful reconciliation and honoring global initiatives like the United Nations 
Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. I honor the Blackfoot as the elders and members taught me how to be kind in my red road journey. Elder Red Crane taught me how to pronounce my spirit name in Blackfoot, and Leonard Kenny taught me how to pronounce my spirit name in Satu Dene. My humblest apologies to the Blackfoot and Dene elders and language keepers as I try to learn proper pronunciation. I'm speaking to you on the lands of the Nitsitapi, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south of the imposed US Canadian border are the Blackfeet, and north of the border are the Siksika, Ganai, and Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands are Treaty 7 signed September 22nd, 1877, with signatures that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Wesley, Chiniki, and Bearspaw Nations of the Stony, and the Dene from Sutina. I acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit, status and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. All non-Indigenous are treaty partners with the government signing on your behalf. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you to previous donors for showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can't afford to give, thank you. To those who cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send in your comments or questions. Also, giving a review helps whatever medium you're listening from. I have a YouTube channel that you can go and subscribe. Go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest pod, uh, podcast and pin posts on social media. So today, I'm quite lucky to have uh, Kyle with me. Kyle, would you like to introduce yourself in your way? Hello, everybody. Hello, my friends. I greet you all. Uh, my name is Kyle. Um, I come from uh, the Lake of the Strangers area, also known as Slave Lake, Alberta, in Treaty 8 territory. Um, I am currently a guest on Treaty 6 territory. I live in Edmonton, Alberta, um, and I my family names are LaRondell and Shaw. Uh, I'm Métis, and I'm just happy to be with you. Uh, thanks for having me today. Yeah, I'm really, really happy to have you here because um, first and foremost, uh, you gave us a bit about your background, but why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do for a living? Sure. Uh, so I, so my, my mother is, uh, is, is Métis. Um, and my, my dad is uh, Polish and Ukrainian, which is where I get the funky last name from, uh, Muzika. Um, I, uh, I grew up in, in, in Slave Lake. Uh, I lived there all the way until I was about 17 and I've lived in Edmonton pretty much since then minus two months I lived in Yellowknife uh, um, when I got that was a, my first CBC job was in Yellowknife for a couple of months um, I've worked at the CBC for about um, going on seven years now almost eight uh, I've worked um, in pretty much every role uh, locally that I possibly could. Um, and uh, lately I've been working in radio. Um, I work for CBC Radio nationally. Um, I uh, tend to focus on Indigenous storytelling specifically, so um, I try to help tell the stories of, of Indigenous people across the land, um, whether it's, you know, about um, children in care or, you know, a, a, an artist's new album or, you know, anything in between. Um, you know, I, I try to make sure that um, I try to I try to help tell them in a good way and, and make sure that folks uh, whose stories I, I'm helping to tell um, are in the driver's seat. Mm. You know, um, what really brought me to your attention right now was this conversation about incarceration. 
I love stories of telling our joy first and foremost. Uh, but at the same time, I know for somebody like myself who claims to be political and trying to do the right thing, I have to be educating myself regularly on uh, the issues that are impacting us. And to me, we are, are literally prisoners in our own country. And, um, and it's happened over generations now. And this is just another example of, of the work that you're doing, uh, spotlighting the incarceration issue that we're seeing. And I think a lot of non-Indigenous, um, you know, they have so much anti-Indigenous bias that they think so poorly of us. Ironically, I think it was Nelson Mandela who said that you just look in the jails to see the uh, politics of a country. And with us being overrepresented, it's so clear this is all about stolen land, land theft, and uh, continuation of propaganda against our people. And uh, so seeing that you have a six-part series coming out on the incarceration of Indigenous people, I was super excited to ask you to come on the show and have you come on to talk about it because, you know, it, it needs a more nuanced conversation. And unfortunately, that's not what uh, Canadians here, obviously by design, that's propaganda, right? So I was wondering if you uh, wanted to discuss a little bit about uh, why you chose this particular subject and, and how it came to be. And you must have went to school in, in, in Edmonton for, for media in some capacity. I did, yeah. Um, I I went to McEwen University, um, which is is quite similar, uh, I think, to to Calgary's Mount Royal uh, in size and and uh, and some programs as well. Um, I decided to focus on this because you know I, I think anytime I want to focus on something that's um, a little bit more of a deep dive, it it's usually has impacted me in some way. Um, you know, I did a I did a series previously on children in care. Um, which was inspired by uh, Nuoko, my, my grandmother, uh, who was uh, a foster parent to over a hundred children kind of throughout her foster parent career, some, some for a weekend, some for 18 years, you know, it just kind of depended on, on the, uh, on the situation. And so this one, you know, I, I had, a, I have a couple family members, uh, a couple of cousins and second cousins who have been impacted by the justice system, you know, and I think you take one look at it and, and I think it's pretty easy to see that, the, that it's rife with issues. I mean, anytime you've got, uh, you know, you've got 5% of the population, it, uh, it represents is indigenous of the entire country. And then 32% of the federally incarcerated folks identify as indigenous. That's, that's an incredible rate. I think that's something that um, I thought deserved a look uh, and a closer look, you know, to your point about, um, you know, it's always sort of been this way. I think what's really interesting is in the folks that I that I spoke to, you know, I had a couple people tell me that, you know, Indigenous people ever since colonization, ever since, uh, you know, settlers came over, have been imprisoned on their own lands in various ways. Um, and it, it, and some of them overlap. I mean, you know, you go from, you know, people, putting people onto reserves to, um, you know, to residential schools, um, to, you know, all the way to, you know, to incarceration, of course, all of those overlap, but in a sense, it, it, it's felt like, you know, not just people who have committed crimes are, uh, imprisoned on their own lands, but, you know, really everybody, you know, I, I heard from, I was working on a different story and I heard from uh, an elder that, you know, uh, first nations people weren't supposed to, weren't supposed to really live on reserves primarily, you know, res reserves were meant to be retirement communities for uh, for elders where they could maintain ceremony and where they could live, live on the land and, and be relatively untouched. 
And, um, you know, we're seeing like an incredible amount of, uh, of poverty on reserves that um, is driving folks to places where they don't necessarily want to go, but they don't have any other choice. And so that's what happens oftentimes when people are committing crimes is that they don't really know how else to survive. And then you run into this idea of how, you know, how high the recidivism rates or the reoffending rates are. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into that, but I think, you know, it's just an endless cycle for folks. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really challenging for, for people to, to break that cycle without, um, without proper supports. And so those are some of the things that I had been thinking about kind of prior to, to moving into uh, wanting to look at this a little closer. Right. So I was having a look and, and thank you for pinning your post about this particular issue. Um, so we have the very first part of your six part series here and um, episode one. So do you do podcasting and how would folks get to listen to it? And then, of course, there is some uh, articles here as well, but they don't go nearly as deep as uh, audio does. So how would people um, access that? Yeah, so our, um, you know, hilariously, CBC's uh, radio page isn't the most friendly to navigate. So it's kind of challenging to uh, uh, find anything on that page. So it's, it's been, um, what I've been doing is I've just been posting these um, stories as they air across the country uh, on different radio programs. I've just been posting them online and I've just been posting them in a Twitter thread. Um, I've had a, a few people reach out to me over email and, and ask me to send them as well, which is kind of what I've been doing, which it, it's not the greatest way to promote the work. But I usually if folks are are curious, I usually direct them to the Twitter thread because it gives me the ability to, to, to share a little bit of context. Um, and it's also chronological um, because yeah. even the feed that uh, that they that these stories live in is not totally chronological, um, which you know is just bad UI, but you know, I'm just kind of trying to deal with it as I can. So I would, I would direct people to that. Um, if, if somebody were to ask. Yeah, that's great. I, um, you know, I, I know how hard this is because I've been running a book club since 2016 and, you know, you try to show people that bigger picture of what TRC is like, so we've gone through all the volumes of TRC. Uh, we did the past system. Uh, we did, uh, lost harvests, uh, clearing the plains, you know, to try to give that context. Right now, we're really focused on the missing and murdered Indigenous women inquiry. And I think between that and the child welfare component, like it's so clear that we've always been incarcerated in some capacity. But, you know, it is shocking to me that folks that have been reading this along for years with me still, they don't, they don't comprehend the gravity of it, right? Like, it, I don't know sometimes what it's going to take to really get through all of that. But, you know, you, you did talk to uh, the personal part of it as well. And, um, you know, I, I know a this fantastic artist in this uh, city right now. And uh, he feels um, that there's not enough said about uh, that being incarcerated and being in solitary confinement. And, uh, you know, out of his four buddies, all of them went to jail, but only two are, are living right now. And uh, I find, and I'm sure you do as well, that colonial trauma comes in so many different ways and so many different aspects. So many of our folks also struggle with addiction as a result of all of this trauma, trying to deal with mental health services that are not culturally appropriate. And, uh, you know, so 
uh, that was a, a big conversation I wanted to have with you. But let's start, I guess, first with the first episode here, um, how it talked about 32% of federal inmates are Indigenous. And how did we get here? Now, I, I just for full transparency, I'm a, a, a card carrying liberal, so much so actually of the Indigenous Peoples Commission, like tattooed on me. Uh, and that's a part of the Liberal Party of Canada. So from my point of view, um, when Harper instituted these mandatory sentences, etc., to me, that was like the catalyst of a lot of it. But now we have been in power since 2015. And we've seen how our justice minister, the first Indigenous woman justice minister was treated, eventually kicked out of the party. I get to see her on Sunday. I'm super excited. Um, you know, so we, we're seeing that. And we're seeing how these rates are not changing, despite you know, not having Harper in, in place. But that said, I mean, this is consecutive conservative liberals since the beginning of Canada that has created this mess. So I was just wondering if you wanted to maybe just start with the, the very first part here and, um, and talk about this uh, piece of over-incarceration and how it affects us as Indigenous people. You know, I think a, a stat that is particularly incredible to me and one that really sticks out is that 50% uh, of female identifying inmates, federal inmates, um, are Indigenous. So that's half, which is absolutely um, mind-blowing to me. You know, I think when we think about, um, you know, you had mentioned the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls inquiry, um, you know, when I, when we when we think about treaty and we think about how many of our communities were uh, matriarchal matriarchal sorry um, the women ran the show um, and of course the men obviously helped but but the women were the leaders in a lot of our communities and when we when we think about the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls inquiry that's a, that's exhibit A of how we are not taking care of our women uh, in our community. And, you know, I mean, exhibit B or exhibit A, you know, number two is that, you know, half our half of the federal population for of women uh, who are incarcerated are indigenous, like we're clearly not doing a good enough job taking care of our women. And I think that is a huge part of it. I think, you know, the fact that we're seeing recidivism rates or reoffending rates for indigenous people, indigenous men in the prairie specifically, are at about 70%, which means that 70% of people who, Indigenous men who get released, reoffend. We see uh, nationwide, we see about a 60% uh, reoffending rate within five years. So 60% of Indigenous people who are offending reoffend within five years. That tells us that we are not doing a good enough job taking care of these people when, when they are out. Um, you know, I heard stories and stories and stories of people who said, you know, I got out of, of, of prison and I had $80 in my pocket. What am I supposed to do with $80? You know? Um, and so of course they're going to turn to the only way that they've known to make money, which is crime. Because as we all know, you know, it's, it's, it's increasingly difficult to get uh, work, uh, as somebody who's a convicted felon. Um, you know, there's a whole whack of, of things that 
Indigenous people are impacted disproportionately at, you know, they're more likely to be put into solitary confinement. Um, hilariously, they, they call it uh, structured intervention units now, uh, but still solitary confinement as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, we see that Indigenous people are, um, you know, ha ha they have violence used by correctional officers at disproportionate rates. Uh, they're more likely to be labeled as a gang member. Um, they're more likely to uh, self-harm. Um, you know, it's everything I think that every stat that we sort of can track, Indigenous people are impacted disproportionately within those prison walls. And so, you know, one thing, another thing that you said that was really interesting is, is you know, in your conversations, you found that sometimes people have a hard time linking the two uh, or, or linking things between like incarceration or, uh, you know, the child welfare, you know, everything is related. Uh, everything is connected. When we think about, uh, you know, when I asked uh, inmates and I asked correctional investigators about what is colloquially known as the pipeline uh, from the child welfare system to the prison system, but like everybody said, uh, you know, it almost felt sort of normalized that this was a, a fact, you know, the people that I spoke to had, they were in foster care. Uh, they said like a large majority of people were 60 scooped or they were in foster care or both or, and so when we think about, it's not linear, like these things are not linear, but they're all connected. Everything's connected. When you take away land, when you take away culture, of course, people are going to be impacted in a negative way. And so, you know, ultimately, one of the things that I think is really, that I really hope this series gets across is that all of these things are connected and we can't just, you know, one of the, one of the pieces that I'm sure we'll talk about in a bit is, is concerns graduate reports, which are, are, um, is a deterrent that is meant to impact or is meant to help, uh, indigenous offenders sort of seek alternative, um, dressing for their, for their wrongs. So like restorative justice programs, for example, you know, we can't, fix these problems with just one bolt-on solution like that because um, clearly things are getting worse and you know I think when we think about um, you know how these numbers have constantly risen uh, regardless of who's in power um, it's clear that neither uh, or any of the governments that have ever been in, in power while these problems are going on have had the the tools or the solutions or the willpower or the gall to to fix them no, I'm with you and I'm, I'm proud to be a liberal, but yet I'm not proud that we cannot seem to get moving on this. Um, and then that, of course, I, I was going to talk to you about the glad you reports next because that's the second part of your series and you know I i've uh, so I, i'm also the MMIW um, co chair for for Calgary and a lot of our MMIWs we see come straight out of uh, foster care and the and the. Um, those homes that they have and of course then they they're kicked out on the streets with absolutely nothing um and and so of course they end up dead and people are somehow shocked by this and it, it's it's horrific to me that anyone who lives in this country who thinks they're so-called helping natives could live with this these facts but i know they don't know and they purposely don't know and nobody's teaching them on purpose all these things so uh through the glad you reports i've found out there's like only two 
um, people in the city that really write GLADU reports from a trauma-informed Indigenous point of view. The other ones are very colonial in their thinking and write it from a colonial standpoint. So like when you said, uh, and I read somewhere something about the GLADU reports not working, I'm like, no, they're not working. And I know I've tried to talk about this with other people, but you know, Kyle, I'm not going to lie, as an Indigenous woman, like, it is shocking to me how I can say the sky is blue, you can say the sky is blue, but if Justin Trudeau says the sky is blue, then the sky is blue, right? Like, it, it is shocking to me the dismissal, the anti-Indigenous bias, the, you know, misogyny. So, like, I can say these things, but people don't hear it. And when, especially with the Glad You reports, like, there's no, uh, there's a backlog, there's, uh, it's expensive, and there's only like two people that really write it from a somewhat better point of view, as opposed to a completely Tom Flanagan way, right? So th those are things that I know in my life, but I'd love to hear what you uncovered and what you learned. Well, I think the, 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 the thing that I was most shocked by, and I learned a lot throughout this process, um, but the thing that I, the one single fact, if I had to pick one that I was most shocked by was was about Gladue reports. Um, I, I had an opportunity to speak to the former correctional investigator of Canada, Howard Sapers, who is fantastic um, and really gave me a lot of insight as to how things work. Um, you know, he was a correctional investigator, I think, for over a decade. And uh, he was very, very frustrated with how the, the lack of action. I mean, they had every year had talked about we need to do something about the uh, mass incarceration of Indigenous people in this country and even offered solutions, but it never obviously had never really changed anything. You know, it was one of the things he said was, was one of his biggest regrets is that he wasn't able to make more progress on that. But the thing that he told me about Gladue reports that was really, really interesting is that, first of all, you're right, Michelle, they, they are, say, severely understaffed. They, uh, the, the amount of Gladue writers versus the amount of Gladue reports that, um, you know, in theory should be written as as per the Supreme Court of Canada ruling in 1999 um, is severely lacking. I mean, when we talk about the criminal code and how it, there's a specific section in there that talks about we need to consider, uh, uh, you know, an Indigenous offender, um, every Indigenous offender needs to have a consideration for uh, restorative justice programs um, to help break, you know, a cycle. Of course, I'm butchering that, uh, that language. They wrote it much nicer than I did. But with Gladue reports in specific, these are meant to be, the Supreme Court says that every Indigenous person who wants one should get one. And so we're seeing across the country that this is not the case. Um, we're seeing, uh, of course, there's, there's hardly any stats to go by because people don't keep them. But we've heard anecdotally, you know, especially from former and the current correctional investigators, that there are people who aren't getting Gladue reports. But the ones who are, um, and this is what really shocked me, was that these can actually have a negative impact on uh, on folks who are offenders. So what happens is you are an Indigenous offender and you get a Gladue report written. This is completely made up. I'm making all this up. But for the sake of example, this offender, let's say, had a history, an, an early history of substance abuse. Maybe they started using alcohol and drugs at you know age 9 or 10. Uh, maybe age 11 or 12, they had like a violent... Uh, outburst or, you know, a string of violent events. And so these are often written into the Gladget report to illustrate to the judge that this person had a hard life. And because of colonialism, because of structural racism, 
Um, this person was not allowed to engage in their culture. They grew up in poverty. So these are the things that happened. What can happen in turn though, is the judge might see this and say, oh, this person has violent tendencies or this person had, it, you know, is very susceptible to substance abuse. I'm gonna mark this person a dangerous offender. And so a dangerous offender designation is really, really challenging for, for folks. Um, indigenous people are uh, disproportionately named dangerous offenders as well. And what this can mean is that, uh, you know, especially for more serious crimes where you are offered parole, um, dangerous offenders do not ever really get parole. Um, it is very, very, very rare, uh, which, which means they don't get out before their time serves. So if they're given life seven, for example, uh, you know, seven years, you get your first opportunity at parole. They do technically get, like they do have the opportunity to get parole, but with dangerous offenders, uh, I think it's very, very few and far between that they actually get released um, early. So that means that they are in jail for longer. Um, this can also mean if, if and when they do get out, it is very, it is even more challenging to get uh, work, to have uh, really any sort of semblance of a normal life. And so um, that the Gladue reports were meant to help steer Indigenous folks to restorative justice programs and to help them break any cycles they might be in, that they had the opposite effect was really, really shocking to me and not something that I had considered, but something when it was explained to me made a lot of sense. Sure. Oh, that it is horrifying because that was exactly the point of having them was to showcase that it's a lack of cultural supports, a lack of cultural understanding, colonial trauma in many different levels, educational racism, all these things, right? So it's just heartbreaking to hear that. And I, I'm glad that you brought it up. Um, as I said, I have a friend who was incarcerated and had, uh, you know, way too many times spent alone. And I know that breaks a lot of our UN charters. And I was, I see that that's a kind of concern of the third episode. Did you want to elaborate a little more about what you uncovered there? Yeah. I mean this, so this story was not, I did not, uh, I did not break the story. This was a well-known story, especially within, um, uh, within like circles around, uh, you know, criminal justice reform. But when I heard the story of Eddie Snowshoe, um, who was a uh, Gwich'in man um, who uh, died in, uh, died by suicide in federal custody, I, hearing his story was very, it, it highlighted and illuminated so many problems that we that we see within the within the justice system. I mean, this man uh, was, you know, again, had run out of options in terms of trying to provide for his family, and in turn, decided to uh, try to attempt to rob a cab driver. Um, he shot at the cab driver, um, he didn't, nobody died or anything, but he was sentenced to uh, a few years in prison, I believe, uh, and was sent to Stony Mountain Institution, um, which is a infamous uh, um, institution in Manitoba. Uh, and so, you know, one that actually, you know, many of our, uh, you know, Nagio leaders um, were in, including uh, Chief Big Bear, um, after he was sentenced for treason, uh, after shortly after the treaty, Treaty 6 was signed. And so he was in prison, and was very clearly communicating to people, at least, you know, from what we understand, uh, that he uh, 
had intention had intend had had intended to self harm, and so that suggests to us that he had untreated mental health issues and stuff that needed to be addressed but wasn't. Um, he was um, he was he had made a what correctional officers called a knife um, out of a juice box. So I'm assuming it was just a, a folded juice box with sort of like a sharp edge. Um, and so for that, he was uh, put in solitary confinement. Um, the UN charter, one of the UN charters says that if you spend any, any, any person who spends longer than I think 15 days in uh, solitary confinement, that is considered torture. He was in solitary confinement for 162 straight days before he took his own life. Um, and so I had the opportunity to speak with uh, Chris Statnick, who's a, a Vuntagwichin lawyer, fantastic, uh, fantastic person. And, and you know, I, I really was so grateful for him for sharing this story because clearly it still impacts him and it really impacted me in a very significant way because um, it's just so tragic. Um, something yes. that, something that could, could have been largely prevented, um, if, if we actually, you know, cared about restorative justice and we, if we cared about helping people, um, become better people, um, you know, maybe he would still be alive. If we had given more control to communities, uh, who, um, you know, shifted responsibilities to communities who wanted to help their own people you know, maybe he would still be alive, you know, I, who knows, I, I think it's, but I, I think it was just really emblematic of a lot of things that we saw um, as, as wrong with the justice system. And it really impacted me in, in a very significant way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know here in Calgary, we have uh, a new justice circle, and, and we have um, a Croshu who's a judge, but, you know, it's still really colonial, it's still lawyer speak, but in a circle. And uh, so I, I, I'm not convinced like this is at all what we're looking for. Like it's still colonial and it's not back to, um, we did not have jails before uh, colonialism. You know, we dealt with our family members. We dealt, we helped them. We taught them. We see it as education. And that's not the case with uh, colonialism in Canada. They're all like about punitive justice and uh, incarceration. And, you know, Corrections Canada is improperly labeled because it's there's nothing about corrections to it. And I know they've done a huge campaign to try to pretend like they do, um, you know, rehabilitation, but it's not. And at the end of the day, we have imposed poverty by the Canadian government on Indigenous people. And that doesn't change in the time somebody's incarcerated. And uh, racism and trying to get employment doesn't change while people are incarcerated. And I think that you know, there's a, a huge need to understand that restorative justice is our communities looking after ourselves, not, um, you know, some outsider from Britain with British laws telling our people how to behave and speak English and do English things. And, you know, that's the, the opposite of reconciliation. It's the opposite of being treaty partners. It's the opposite of equality in treaty. Like, it's just, there's so many things wrong with everything that I see, but I, I just feel like nobody says these things out loud and I don't understand why. And then of course, like I remember uh, Murder in the First with Kevin Bacon and it was a way to try to highlight that, you know, oh no, jail, jails are, are different, they've changed, but they're not, they're not different. And especially if you're indigenous, you're still stuck in the stupid um, system of being left alone. And then of course that creates trauma. Like 
people are not meant to be left alone and especially our people we are community based right so we're used to dealing not just with like our immediate family the way um the structure of uh britain brought in but that bigger picture of being with our aunties our uncles our grandmas you know like that bigger picture we're, we're used to being in a community regularly so um and then to take an indigenous person and put them into a little box and never let them see or talk it's no wonder our people are committing suicide and i you know, I, I'm I'm heartbroken. I think of uh, right here where I live. Um, I've been with the Crazy Bull family. Uh, they lost Jackie during Stampede in 2007, and uh, just recently, Sonny Crazy Bull <laughs> died in police custody. And the ACERT could totally said it was fine. Uh, for folks who don't know, ACERT is supposed to be an oversight body of uh, people that die in police uh, custody and or are shot. Like whenever there's a gun by a cop uh, acer is supposed to investigate but ultimately it's ex-cops investigating cops and so never is there anything done and of course they don't have any indigenous training whatsoever so you know they just don't get it and uh, continue to let these folks get away so acer gave the clear and for me it's so you know like and for folks who are traumatized easily i apologize but um when we are incarcerated the first thing they do is like severe cavity searches which in my world is rape but because it's done by a so-called officer it seems to be okay so anyway you know when that happens to us and then they magically get a, a pill in the in the jail to to do an overdose from like you know why isn't it the responsibility of the people who have them in the jails it's not and yet you know, Canada just is really okay with genocide of Indigenous people. And to me, that's what is the most upsetting, is that here we have a man who is just trying to do good for his family, trying to provide in a system that is has every conceivable barrier at every single point for us to be able to thrive. And, you know, now he's dead. And now this family is left without their dad, without their husband, without this brother, without their community member. And um, so I, I appreciate you sharing that. I think that uh, I hope we all learn more about Eddie Crowshoe and, and make changes directly. Um, in part four, we talk, uh, you talk about the 60 scoop and you talk about uh, how the system is like, get caught, go to jail, get out, rinse and repeat. Uh, so I guess we're kind of talking a bit about that. Hey, is there anything more that you'd like to add about that? Just that I was able to speak with somebody who is currently incarcerated um, and he, um, we, uh, I call him Stephen in the, in the piece, uh, it's not his actual name. Um, we wanted to just conceal his identity just uh, in case that might negatively impact him within the prison walls. Um, but he um, was really generous and uh, was sharing his experiences. I mean, he had a really hard life. Um, he was uh, part of the 60s scoop. He, he was in foster care. And just like the way he explained, the way he explained his life um, and, and, you know, he had a, a quote in there where he said, you know, I got out and, and you know, I, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, you know, I got out and I did what all, the, the only thing that I knew uh, to make money, which was commit crimes. And so, you know, we get to a point where I just thought it was a really nice example, uh, not nice, I guess, but like, it's unfortunate, but it's, it's a, it's a poignant example of, of something that um, is ever present with a lot of folks who experience incarceration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's, 
to me, that bigger picture of uh, folks in trauma, you know, constant trauma, constant survival mode. And uh, we don't talk about that enough as, um, as a society, what that does to you regularly, you know, coming from a system that denies you a chance to ever heal. Uh, that's for sure. And then uh, I, episodes uh, five and six are not quite up yet. What, what can we look forward to? Well, um, episode five deals with, uh, you know, we, I was able to speak with uh, somebody who um, is a prison advocate, um, Sherry Meyer, um, who um, is another fantastic person who's doing a lot of work for people, I think, who, um, you know, uh, I think people kind of, you know, I don't, I don't know how, what it's like in Calgary, but in Edmonton, um, you know, Edmonton Max is a, um, is a prison that is uh, like renowned across the country as being a, a bad place. And it's just outside the city limits. You drive by it if you're, you know, if you're heading east. And uh, I think, you know, a lot of people when they drive by it, they're like, oh, there's the prison. And then they just drive by. I think it's, it's very easy to compartmentalize um, prison. Yep as something that just is a thing about society that you never have to deal with. You know, one of the things I was thinking about when you asked me uh, what was something that sort of inspired you to do the work, mm -hmm. I had a conversation with some friends of mine who are from here um, or from elsewhere who are, um, who are white, um, white people. And, uh, and it was really interesting how they, when they were talking, because one of them had had dealt with a friend of theirs who uh, had recently went to jail, and they were talking about how they had never experienced something like that, and they were like, "Wow, has anybody else ever experienced that?" And you know, you look around the whole table, and everybody's like shaking their head no. And I thought it was really interesting because, you know, not that I thought it was a normal experience, but it was really interesting that that people had an experience that I experienced with like having friends and, and family members who had gone to jail. And, you know, like sometimes, sometimes I see releases uh, like news releases in our, in our media inbox. And I, and I know the people who were arrested, like, like, it's just the things that I, you know, experienced growing up in a small town. I, I don't think that's certainly unique, but it was something, one of those things that really inspired the work. I had the opportunity in, in that fifth episode to also talk to somebody who was incarcerated and has since got out and has built a life for himself. Mm. Um, which, you know, you talk about doing stories about an indigenous joy. Um, I, I certainly wouldn't classify it as joy, but I think it's, it's, it's a good opportunity to talk to somebody who is a success story, sort of that, that rose through the concrete that, that despite all of the barriers and despite likely having little to no support when you get out, uh, somebody who, you know, is now a support worker for, you know, Indigenous folks who are experiencing homelessness in Montreal, like that, those are the types of things that I think, um, you know, are, are victories, uh, you know, of course, it does not absolve him from the crime he, he committed. But at the end of the day, I mean, what are we doing if we are not allowing space for people to redeem themselves and to heal? Um, and so in the, in the final episode, uh, we talk about solutions. So, you know, I, I'm not one who proposes solutions, but I talk to some folks who do. And, you know, there's this, the solutions range everywhere from, you know, more significant restorative justice programs all the way to prison abolition. So what does that look like in practice? What, what would it look like if we didn't have prisons and we instead put people, uh, made people who, you know, committed crimes, uh, put them in, in the, with the responsibility of their communities? And what would that look like? Um, how would we support that? You know, some of these things are, are, are really big picture, blue sky, 
you know, everything breaks right kind of ideas. But I mean, again, what are we doing if we're not trying to, uh, you know, make our society a better place to live? And so, while not forgetting that these people are people who deserve empathy and they deserve care, um, doesn't absolve them from the stuff that they've done. But I think at the same time, you know, I, I think we have to have space for redemption. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, and I think, you know, the TRC and the inquiry, uh, you know, and the uh, UNDRIP, they they t- give us guidelines. Like, why can't we at least start trying to emulate them in some capacity? Like, why has that been so difficult? And then, of course, you have provincial and federal jurisdiction, and you don't see cooperation, like, you know, as a you know <laughs> liberal in Calgary, I can tell you, we are not seeing it at the municipal level, the provincial level, right? That working together partnership, like you get the odd counselor that might, but uh, unfortunately that's few and far between. And we're not talking about systemic changes, right? Um, We have the uh, office of the child and youth advocate and every year they put out the stats of how many kids are dying in custody, how many dying are dying in in incarceration really, because they're incarceration uh, facilities. And, um, and, and solutions and they never get implemented. So, so to me, we, we have guidelines. We just don't have politicians that are brave enough to institute them. And we have the this new government that uh, wants to create some sort of police force that we've shown has absolutely no value whatsoever. In fact, worse, it's not, it's going to take billions of dollars that we don't have and create a, a workforce that's insanity. I, I, and I don't mean to be ableist. Actually, I'm trying not to use ableist terms, but to me that there's no logical sense to this. So there's no, like, I, I can't wrap my head around it in any capacity of why we would want to invest in a police force that we know is not going to help us in any capacity. But yet, if we were to be honest about who's in the jails and who needs those services, you know, I can't light a smudge in most places. And this is like a huge part of our practice, let alone trying to learn our language, let alone trying to, you know, uh, integrate back into our our own communities and, and then having economic opportunities when we're there to be able to provide for our families in some capacity. Like it, it's just, uh, it's gross and we don't have proper healthcare or, uh, you know, folks with disabilities don't have the proper supports they need. So, you know, and I just go back to Ralph Klein cutting all of the mental health supports back then. And I just, I could not understand how people wouldn't see this as the outcome of all of this work and, and jurisdictional limits. And uh, do you talk at all about that in, in this conversation or do you focus mainly on feds or? Yeah, it's mostly it's mostly on the feds because those are the stats that sort of guided the work. But I think, you know, speaking about police in specific, I mean, I'm sure you're finding it in, in Calgary, certainly here in Edmonton, you know, um, we have a, a lot of police who are, um, you know, and, and peace officers who issue tickets for loitering or, or you know, um, hang, essentially hanging out in, in uh, you know, in LRT stations, for example, or in, in public places that they, that they don't want them in. Um, you know, a large majority of folks who experience homelessness uh, within our city um, are Indigenous. There are, there are relatives. And so um, what happens when you have unpaid tickets, you know, people, they can send you to remand. And now this is not typically federal remand, but it's provincial. Um, 
but these are how these cycles continue to perpetuate, right? When we talk about, you know, an Alberta police force, I, you know, obviously I, I can't really have an opinion on whether it'll work or not. But one thing, one thing that I do know is that the current police system and how it operates uh, disproportionately impacts Native people on this land. Yep. You know, when we uh, you know, when, when the, you know, the Hayawak and the Minnesota and the, and the Stony signed Treaty 6 and, you know, to, to, to your communities and the Blackfoot Confederacy signed Treaty 7, you know, one of the stipulations was around uh, free and unabsolved movement within the treaty territory for all First Nations folks. Mm -hmm. um, when we talk about these types of incarceration, whether it's through foster care or whether it's through the, you know, over ticketing homeless people to uh, over incarcerating them uh, in our jails, um, that is not being a good treaty person. And so when we talk about an Alberta police force, you know, the, the issues with the RCMP um, aren't just specific to the RCMP you know, police, police work on the whole, um, have a whole lot of work to do to decolonize and to stop disproportionately arresting and impacting our, our relatives. And so, you know, at the end of the day, these things are, are really, really important to, to the whole conversation about over-incarceration, because I think if we don't fix that issue, these folks are still are going to continue to be put into the jails at disproportionate rates and get impacted. Because, you know, I don't think this is a newsflash to anybody, but jail is not a safe place. And it's certainly not a place for folks to better themselves. It's really, really hard to do that in that environment without proper support. So, you know, I think it's really good that you that you brought that up. Most of the work that I did this time is around the feds. But I think it's all intrinsically linked for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's heartbreaking. And I, I uh, obviously feel very passionate that if we're going to be <laughs> talking as a, as a country built on human rights, like that we absolutely are built on stolen land and genocide. So like that narrative of, of us being good people uh, internationally, it, it's always shocking to me <laughs> because yeah, as an indigenous person, you grow up in this country, you know, you know better, but um, the narrative is out there and uh, it, it's just, it, it's upsetting. It's hard. Um, just to give you some context, we're going to have a standoff by Bruce McIver in December. Um, on Monday is our National Inquiry Chapter 7 and 8. So like we're always talking about the injustice for sure. But, um, you know, that's this really small group of people that come to a book club, you know, and as you know, like I, I think uh, audio podcasts, uh, it's so much better radio, so much better, for, especially for storytellers to tell their stories. Uh, to me, it's such important work that you're doing right now. I, I wish you so well on it. And you made a mention to uh, doing it for child welfare. And I think that's another important conversation to me. It's like, you know, the, the mini incarceration and then the the maximum and then ironically childhood trauma is probably the worst trauma that you live for for life with right like you can't just undo it like that and uh oh i want to ask you real quick if covid was brought up as an excuse for solitary confinement because i know i read that once and i just thought you mother you truckers <laughs> you know like yeah. any excuse yeah. to mis mistreat our people right 
Yeah, it, and, it, and it did come up um, in speaking with uh, the correctional investigators, both former and current, you know, they spoke about the need for structured intervention units or solitary confinement, it, but only in respect to uh, keeping people safe. Um, you know, I don't, I don't believe that they are, like, they're certainly not advocates for it, but I think um, they see a need, but it did come up for sure. Um, COVID also came up in the context of it being increasingly difficult to access ceremony. So as you might be able to understand, um, you know, and I think a lot of Native people certainly reconnecting folks like myself, you know, it's really, really hard to um, engage with, with culture. Uh, if you don't know anybody, it's really, really challenging to do that within the prison walls. And so what they're finding is, you know, uh, with COVID, you know, elders were less frequent. Um, of course, I think things are getting a little bit better now, but uh, certainly at the height, um, it was really challenging for folks to engage with their culture. Many, many of these people are engaging with it for the first time, right? Because it was yep. stolen away from them as, as children. And so, um, you know, I think when we're talking about restorative justice, if you can't really do any of that restorative work, you know, how could there be justice? A hundred percent. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Kyle, about maybe some upcoming uh, projects too? And uh, we'll put a link of, of this work, obviously, when we um, release this episode tomorrow. And if there's anything else you'd like to add, please don't hesitate. Sure. Um, so we've got two more editions uh, coming out on Monday and Tuesday. Um, um, and then I, what I might do as well is I'll, I'll send you, I, I did do a series on child welfare, um, and child and children in care. So I can send uh, that thread to you as well. And yeah, I, uh, I'm working on a, a project about treaty six right now, which is really exciting. We're hoping to air it in the new year. Oh, that's great. Now, to me, this is the most important work of reconciliation is us trying to reclaim who we are. So thank you so much for coming onto the show. Thank you for explaining everything that you're doing. I have this ridiculous exit with resources. You're more than welcome to chime in if you'd like to, but thank you for coming on. And uh, this will probably go to air tomorrow. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Michelle. I was, I was really grateful to do it. Yeah, I'd love to have you on anytime. And because uh, obviously, to me, this is the solidarity work we have to do together uh, nationally, provincially, you know, and just locally, anything that we can do to promote uh, the good parts, but also to to show a spotlight like and to me, I'm a proud liberal, but I'm not proud of this. These are things that need to end immediately. Child apprehension, uh, children being uh, incarcerated, adults being incarcerated, like this has to end immediately. I can't understand how anyone thinks we are a land of opportunity uh, when like my own brother can't get a job because he he's like, uh, maybe the lighting is really bad, but he's even darker than I am. And I have my dad's light eyes and he has my mom's dark eyes, right? So he looks far more native than I do. And I'm afraid for him leaving the house. I, I just, I know the way the police are here. Um, you know, what? right behind my old work was where Robin Fiddler was murdered by the police. And uh, it, it's really hard for me to feel safe here. And I have a 15 year old daughter. I don't want the next generation and the generations after to go through any of this anymore. It's unacceptable. It's 2022. And, uh, you know, and, and unfortunately, a friend of mine who is visibly uh, Cree, he just lost, uh, lost, sorry, he just uh, went to a mall and his son was denied a haircut because an, an, an accusation of lice when the child did not and they went to another place and it was fine. Like the racism is so pervasive. You know, our own city councillors are 
busy making uh, racial and, and misogynistic jokes, drunk and that getting aired. And it's just a gross time. And I really hope that we can move forward in a good way. And I think that, you know, your last episode, having solutions is good. Uh, I know Jody uh, Wilson Rainboat has put out, she's on her third book. So, you know, I always laugh when people ask me what the solutions are. I'm like, like, have you never picked up a report? Have you never picked up a book? Have you never listened to uh, a podcast or anything? Because we always give the solutions. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And I'm, and I'm really like, I'm team RCAP, like the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples. Yes. Like that document is ever expansive and has incredible amounts of solutions that are still applicable today. You know, even yeah. I think it's been 20, 25 years old now. 1996. And that's what I tell people like that's been out since then. So don't tell me we haven't brought solutions to the table. We just haven't had them implemented by anybody with any political courage. And, uh, you know, so ironically, like in a lot of ways, I've seen so much change since 2015. But when it comes to this issue, I have not and it needs to change immediately. So know that uh, I find your work some of the most important work that you're doing uh, that should be out there that it should be on every Canadian's uh, mind. And I know while half of our listeners are here in Alberta, the other half are in Ontario. So it was really important that you mentioned that this was more federally based so that they know that this affects them too, even though you and I are in Alberta talking about Alberta. This is a national problem, a national issue with national solutions, frankly. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I'm really grateful to, to make space for it. You know, I think none of this stuff I think is new to you or I, but I think, I mean, certainly some of it was, I certainly learned some stuff, but I think the, the problem in general is not new to us, but, you know, I think we just have to keep talking about it until we catch somebody who, who is important, who can make these decisions uh, to help change their tune a little bit. Oh, let's hope. Let's hope. Well, thank you again. I'm proud of this podcast, giving solutions and cultural safety training and cultural first aid and all of them for creating safer space for indigenous people of color, those with disabilities and LGBTQ2 plus to speak. I want to say thank you to authors Cheryl Ward, Chelsea Branch, and Alicia Fridkin of heretohelp.bc.ca. They have a great um, piece on what is Indigenous cultural safety and why I should care about it. Uh, their work and those cultural action tools are available for everyone. So support work like that as part of your reconciliation work and settler understanding. We also have the Reconciliation Action Group here in Calgary. I just found out about the Deaf Chiefs. The Diefen Baker uh, sports team calls themselves the Chiefs and have uh, an inappropriate headdress. So, you know, I know my listeners know this and you're not doing nothing about it. So join the Reconciliation Action Group because we need that changed and a million other things changed in the city. And uh, if you're not from Calgary, you know, there are committees everywhere. Uh, nationally in churches and if not make one start one start a book club there's so much work to do uh, internal racism or lateral violence is another form of violence that indigenous and marginalized people experience by the structure of racism you can go to racial equity tools.org uh, donna bevins put together a great piece on internalized racism and that's something that i i have to work every single day at unpacking um Do's and don'ts for bystander intervention. So when you see a Muslim being um, treated rudely on the sea train, how many freaking times in a ribbon skirt have I been accosted and nobody has done anything? Do something, act. Uh, and these are your tools in order to do that work. 
Indigenous have been talking about our issues, sharing traumas in reports, commissions, and public hearings so that it can be regularly disregarded. No more. Honor our words. Honor the treaties. Listen to politicians and their policies and their platforms. If they don't recognize the marginalized in their budget with gender equity plus, if they don't, um, if they're making cuts to Indigenous education, uterus health choices, gay straight alliances, have a lack of human rights for migrants, immigrants, folks with disabilities, know that your vote to that party or that politician is directly negatively impacting marginalized people. Demand that they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action. The recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, we, Kyle and I had mentioned RCAP, the multiple reports about child welfare reform, violence prevention, and now 231 calls to justice from the National Inquiry on missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and Two-Spirit. Provincially in Alberta, the Kenny government created 113 pathways to justice. So while you blue voters should hold your blue MLAs to account on it, follow the new premier's council on missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and see if the new premier will honor that. Municipally, we have the white goose flying report. Denying these reports is a form of abuse called gaslighting. Our people are experiencing extreme racism in the educational justice and health institutions with multiple reports that say the same thing. Demand change from election platforms and politicians. If they don't understand colonialism, racism, privilege, and sexism, they literally have zero business running. It should be understood by all parties, local politicians, community organizations, community associations, and sports clubs, so that the Deaf Chiefs is not somehow acceptable. Uh, Google articles on how non-Indigenous Canadians can become allies. If you're experiencing emotional distress after anything we talked about today and want to talk, you can call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and you can also go onto their website, hopeforwellness.ca, and they have a little text box in there. If more related to missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and Two-Spirit, you can call 844-413-6649. It is also 24-7, and if you're non-Indigenous, you can call distress center lines. There's usually a functioning 211 or 833-456-4566. 60-scoop. Um, you also have an Indigenous Society of Alberta at ssisa.ca. And the following are two uh, SLGBTQ plus report uh, su uh, crisis supports that are available in most places in Canada. So you can go to lifevoice.ca. Thank you to the Trevor Project for creating these. Uh, Trans Lifeline is 877-330-6366. And for youth, 866-444-7386. Eight six six eight four four seventy three eighty six. You know, I just came across some of the stats of how many folks are dying in the uh, drug crisis right now, and how overburdened our ambulance and hospital systems are with COVID as well. So, if you know somebody using substances, do not use alone. If you are using alone, you can contact the National Overdose Response Service at 888-688-NORS for support, and you can download the BRAVE or the DORS app. 
And uh, I can't stress enough, if you are Indigenous in Alberta, you can start a relationship with your pharmacist and you can actually access a Narcan a day. All Albertans are able to access a Narcan or a naloxone kit for free. And I beg of you that you have one on you at all times. And especially if you're in areas like uh, public trans transportation or in places that you know that there's a, a high homeless amount of people. That said, overdose happens everywhere in every part of this city, the rich part as well as the poor part. So that's why those uh, resources are so important to use because we don't wanna lose another person. Violence is my everyday reality. Every indigenous generation has faced it. This is self-care, how I take my power back. That's why I started this podcast, to speak freely without interruption, without tone police, leadership shaming, gaslighting questions, as many people don't want to hear our opinions and our truths, but sure want to tell us what they think us Indigenous people should do, even though they may not know anything about us, um, don't understand colonialism, the constant surveillance that we are under our protests, our vigils, and our rights. I and many others share a lot of information on, on racism and microaggressions, so it's just unacceptable to say them anymore. Learn about being trauma-informed. Folks like me are dealing with internalized racism and gatekeeping and folks who stat survive off the status quo, folks who are in their trauma, racial battle fatigue. So I just ask that you understand internal and external racism is an everyday reality for me, Indigenous peoples, folks with disabilities, QT BIPOC, and others. I want to say Masi Cho to my ancestors, to my granny, my mom, what strength looks like through your example. I want to thank my dad for teaching me to be strong and blunt, my stepmom for showing me what a proud culture is through her Austrian family and roots, and teaching me to be a proud Calgarian. It is through her I'm a second generation Calgarian. I want to thank my numerous aunts and uncles for always loving me, supporting me, and guiding me, and teaching me, uh, despite me being a real shit ass when I was little. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to my husband, Darcy, big Buffalo rock man, uh, for producing, editing the show. He's been my husband, childhood friend, father of my child, uh, support down my journey of the Red Road, and has witnessed decades of sexism and racism to our child, uh, Thunderpipe Necklace Woman. We are blessed to learn from you daily, and we are honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a better and stronger person. I hope my daughter and my family will be proud in the future of us trying to discuss these present day issues in a way that they can understand. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian where you can pledge and support. Thank you previous donors for showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, Masi Cho. To those who cannot afford to give, I'd just love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com where you can send in your comments or questions. Uh, I have a YouTube channel that you can go and subscribe. Go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcast, pin posts on social media. And if you want me to come and speak, uh, I'll ha be happy to do so. I'm really excited to go talk to the Medicine Hat Police this week um, and go from there. So I'd like to end by giving a side eye to those Calgary rabbits. You're lucky I'm not tradish. And my beautiful cousin responded, or you'd be in my dish. Thank you so much, folks, for listening.